Well, good morning, church family. Today's message has a very creative title, 1 Thessalonians Week 2. If I did have to give it a creative title, I think I would call it, How Does Christianity Survive? Because statistically speaking, the Christian faith is under threat here in America. Uh, Gallup released uh, some polls recently, and, and it brought some charts so that you could see it. It's the decline of religion in America from generation to generation. And you can see this chart uh, with me. There's the traditionalist generation. That's everybody born uh, before 1946. Uh, the baby boomers, Generation X, and then the millennials. And you can see on this chart it going decreasing as the generations progress. But they didn't just study religion, but specifically the Christian faith as well. And you can see the same thing is true for the Christian faith from traditionalist generation to the baby boomers to the, the, the generation X. But what is also interesting is it wasn't just the decline from generation to generation. Over a period of 20 years, from 1998 to 2018, within every generation, uh, the church membership declined. So statistically speaking, we can see that the Christian faith is under threat here in America. Now, there are lots of uh, cultural uh, opposition to our Christian faith, but you know what? That's always been true. In fact, that's been true uh, ever since there have ever been followers of Jesus who believed in his resurrection. We see that in the pages of the New Testament. We see that persecution. We see opposition from national governments. We see opposition from local governments. We see opposition from the marketplace. Uh, We see opposition from other religions. And yet, in the pages of Scripture, when there is that opposition, Christianity is spreading faster than it ever has. And the last 2,000 years or so of church history also prove when there is opposition from those outside forces, the church actually thrives. It's when there's a tremendous amount of cultural comfort that the church falls asleep. So I do believe with everything in me that the church of America is under threat, but it's not under threat by those on the outside. It's under threat because of those on the inside. Because many of us, are Jesus followers who don't take following Jesus seriously. But the words inspired by the Spirit of God that the Apostle Paul pins in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, they're helpful for us to know what to do next. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, We'll start in verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. So the Apostle Paul is reminding them of their backstory, and I'll remind you of their backstory, which we talked about last week, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 17. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, three missionaries, they leave Philippi, and they come to the Greek city of Thessalonica. There they go to the Jewish synagogue because Paul was Jewish, and from the Hebrew Scriptures they reason from the Scriptures showing them that Jesus of Nazareth was the prophesied, crucified, and resurrected Messiah of Israel, and not just of Israel, but the whole world. Many of those Jewish synagogue members believe the message of the Apostle Paul and the other missionaries, and then some Greek Gentiles as well. 
The Apostle Paul and his friends spend a few months uh, with these new Christians. They spend a few more months uh, spreading the gospel there in Thessalonica. But the Jewish synagogue members who didn't believe, they became jealous of all the notoriety these missionaries were receiving. And so they paid bad actors to stir up the town of Thessalonica against the three missionaries. And they actually had to flee and go to a neighboring town of Berea. So the Apostle Paul didn't get to spend as long as he normally would have with these new Christians spreading the gospel and helping them believe. Every culture has its own language, even organization culture, organizations culture. And churches have their own language too. If you've been around church for a while, you'll start to hear some of these church words. And at the top of the list of church words are evangelism, and discipleship. Evangelism comes from the Greek word uh, euangelion. It means to share the good news. And when we think of evangelism, we often think of somebody like Billy Graham. He would roll into town. He would rent a stadium. He would invite the whole town to come and hear the message of Christ crucified and resurrected. And then most importantly, give people the opportunity to believe in that message. That's evangelism. Discipleship comes from Jesus' original disciples. Uh, And then he commissioned them in Matthew chapter 28 to go and make more disciples. And so discipleship is all about uh, learning to obey Jesus, to become more like Jesus. And historically, churches in America have divided those two church words, evangelism on one side and discipleship on the other side. But because Paul and his friends spend just a few short months in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, we can see a a small... uh, a small picture of of how it should be. It it, it is not divided. There's not evangelism on this side and discipleship on the other side. It's all one thing. And so a better way of thinking about it is not, am I doing evangelism or is my church a discipleship-oriented church? The, The better way of thinking of it is, am I spreading the news of Jesus' lordship and am I helping other Christians to respond to that lordship. Jesus is Lord was the anthem of the very first Christians. Jesus is Lord of of all, uh, of the whole world, and over our lives personally. And this was what Paul and his missionary friends did in Thessalonica. They helped people see that Jesus was Lord, and they helped people to know how to respond in obedience to Jesus the Lord. And he's going to show us in the next few verses a roadmap of how you and I can do the same thing. Because I know that we wanna be faithful in our generation, whatever generation you're in, we wanna be faithful in our generation to turn the tide of those statistics. So let's see how he did it. We'll start in verse two. If you're gonna write some things down this morning, uh, I'd want you to write down, we spread the lordship of Jesus first with courage. Look in verse two with me. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So again, he's reminding them not just of their backstory, but of his backstory. Before he came to Thessalonica, he was in Philippi, and in Philippi, they were outrageously treated. They were arrested, they were beaten with rods, and they were thrown into prison. There was not a fair trial. They didn't deserve it. So this was their experience. And once they were released from prison, they leave Philippi, and they go to the, the town of the Thessalonians. Now, you can imagine being those three missionaries. They come into Thessalonica. They're remembering everything that happened to them in Philippi. Are we going to do the same thing again? 
all we did was go in and proclaim the message that Jesus is Lord and they beat us with sticks. They threw us into prison. What if the Thessalonians receive us in the same way the Philippians did? Paul says, though, we, we put that aside. We acted with courage. We, we didn't let that affect us. We proclaimed the message to you Thessalonians by the help of God. We dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. I cannot overestimate and over-exaggerate the need to learn the skill of trying again in the Christian faith. In fact, I dare say that the only reason that you are sitting there, wherever you are, tuning in to a church service online is because somebody tried again. Some parent, your parent, geared up for the argument when you were in high school that you were gonna have to go to church, you were gonna have to go to the youth group even though you didn't want to. They tried again. Some Bible study leader who was completely discouraged after last week's study because all their preparation, all their hard work, all the time they spent just came out of their mouth and seemed like nobody was even listening. But they tried again. They showed up the next week. Some coworker who invited you, invited you, invited you to church and you politely dismissed them, but they tried again and finally you accepted that invitation and then changed your life. If we are gonna spread the Lordship of Jesus, if we're gonna help people obey the Lordship of Jesus in this world, then we're gonna have to learn to do what the Apostle Paul did, try again with courage. Second thing I'd have you write down, we spread the Lordship of Jesus with a good motive. Look at verse three. For the appeal we make does not spring from error, or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Remember the news of Jesus as prophesied, crucified, resurrected Messiah was, was new. And at the time they couldn't broadcast that to the whole world at one time for all to hear. And so it was transmitted from person to person, from group to group. So it made it a breeding ground for all kinds of false teachers to come in with impure motives and take advantage of churches. And the Apostle Paul says, we didn't do that. And then the fourth thing, the, the third thing I'd have you write down, we spread the Lordship of Jesus to please God. Look at verse four. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. He says, we didn't do this to, to please you. You know after a political commercial, the, the candidate that's running for election will come on in their own words, say, uh, I am such and such and I approve this message. What the Apostle Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you know, when we proclaim the gospel, when we proclaim the lordship of Jesus to you, after we were finished, the only voice that we wanted to hear was the voice of the living God saying, this is a message that I approve. Thessalonians, we didn't come and try to tell you what you wanted to hear we only want the approval of God, not the approval of, of other people. And you'll be able to see in your own life, just as I'm able to see in my own life, a strong correlation, relationship, between my desire to get credit with 
people, to be loved by people, to please people, and my boldness with the message that Jesus is Lord. Those two things are tied together. He says, we didn't do that. We were bold. We were trying to please God. Now, the truth is, is that we all love encouragement. And a good encouragement is like a glass of cold water to a dry and thirsty soul. But there's a difference between being glad to receive encouragement and living to please people and have credit with people. I'm no marathoner. I I think that I've made that clear. But many of you are. Many of you run in the Houston Marathon every year. And uh, one of our pastors, Joel Davis, is a a great marathoner. He's a great pastor, great marathoner. He qualified for the Boston Marathon. And so I asked him this week, uh, what is the hardest mark uh, in a a marathon? What's the hardest point? When do you want to quit? And he said that it's known among marathoners that the mile 20 is what they call the wall. And that's where every muscle in your body is screaming at you to stop running. Along the way of a marathon, often groups congregate to give out encouragement, and they'll yell positive things to the runners. Keep going, keep going. So imagine you are a marathoner, and uh, you get to that mile marker 20. Everything in you wants to quit. It feels like your body's shutting down, but you really want to reach that finish line. And out of the crowd, you're hearing people, some you know, some you don't know, say, keep going, you're almost there, only six miles left. I mean, six miles, that's more than I've ever run at one time. Uh, But only six miles uh, left, Uh, you're going to make it. And and that encouragement, it just gives you the fuel to push through that pain and go ahead to the finish line. Now imagine yourself, you get to mile 20, you've hit the wall, your body's screaming at you, you hear encouragement from the crowd, but you stop. And you go over to the crowd and, and you find the person who yelled out that, hey, you're doing great, keep going. And you say to them, hey, I I really enjoyed that. When you said that, it mean, touched a button in me that I, I, I really... I really appreciate it. And I just wanted to know, um, how can I get more of that from you? Did you park far away? I'll pick you up. I'll carry you back to your car. Do you need somebody to go to the grocery store for you? Do you want me to give you an encouragement so that you can give me an encouragement back? I really like the way that felt. And now I just want to get more of that from you. How do I know the difference between an encouragement that's good for my soul and now I'm living to please people? It's all about the finish line. Encouragement that comes from God through God's people helps you to keep running the race that God has laid out for you. But living to please people moves the finish line. I no longer care about the approval of God. I just want more credit, more encouragement, more fame, love from other people. And the Apostle Paul says, we did not do that. We did not do that. And the reason we need to, if we're going to spread the lordship of Jesus in the world, the reason we need to have our primary motive be for God and God alone is because of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 13 when he tells us the parable of the sower and the seed. He says the the seed goes out and the seed is the word of God. Some of it goes on the path and the birds come and they steal the seed. Some of the seed goes into rocky soil and the plant grows, but then it eventually dies. Some of the seed goes into a soil that has a lot of thorns in it, and the plant grows, but then the thorns choke it out, and it dies. But some seed goes into the good soil, and it yields an amazing harvest. But even in Jesus' parable that he taught us, only 25% of the time does the seed go into the word of ground, the word of God go into the ground, and it have its effect. So if our motive is just, if I proclaim this message of the gospel, somebody's going to respond, 
But Jesus has told us, well, 75% of the time that it happens, it's not going to, to, to yield the result that you want, then we'll give up. But if our motive is, God, I want to do this for you. You are a motive. Uh, approval from you is what I want. Then we're going to keep on spreading the lordship of Jesus, no matter how people around us respond to that message. Next, we spread the lordship of Jesus like a child. Verse 7. Instead, we were like young children among you. So this is back to verse 3 when he says, when we were with you, we, we weren't with you out of a wrong motive. If you've been around a child recently, our daughter Willa is four years old. You know, they're not capable of a long-term con. Right? What you see is what you get. When they are mad, they look mad. When they are sad, they look sad. When they are happy, they look happy. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. When we were with you, it seemed like we really wanted you to believe this. You know why? Because we really wanted you to believe this. That was our only motive. We were like children among you. But then he goes on, number five, how do we spread the lordship of Jesus? We do it like a mother. The second half of verse seven, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So you can see what the Apostle Paul is doing here with this rhetorical device. He says we were like children uh, among you. Now he's saying we were like a mother. And in just a second, he's going to compare them to a father. In 2006, our son Jackson was, was born. And at the time, Amanda started a, a blog to be sort of a digital baby book. It was very common back then. And so in preparation for Mother's Day a couple of weeks ago, uh, I, I went back on that blog. Thank God Blogspot is still in business and, uh, and was reading through all of her old posts at the time Jackson was born and then Annabeth years later and then Willa. Uh, Amanda's an incredible writer. That's what her degree was in from A&M. And so I loved reading it. And so she'd be telling me about all the adventures that we had as a new family. And in almost every single post, no matter what we were doing, we were shopping at the mall, we were out to eat, we were having some kind of other adventure, just the three of us, her, me, and Jackson, always in one of those posts, there's a 20-minute break where he had to eat. And if you've been around a baby recently, especially a newborn baby, you know that those feedings, they come like a freight train. And so a parent, and especially a nursing mom, has to be available 24-7. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. He says, when we were among you, Thessalonians, we were among you like a, a, a mother. We were totally available to you. In January of 2006, before Jackson was born in February, I would have told you that I was a pretty selfless person. I was a youth pastor. And to be a youth pastor, you got to be pretty available to people. You got to go to games. You got to go eat lunches at schools. You got to go watch plays of the, the kids that are in theater. Uh, you're, you're on call a lot. But when he was born, it was like God shined a holy spotlight on just how self-centered I was. Because to be a good parent, and especially to be a good mom, you've got to be totally, totally available. You've got to say, you know what? My life is no longer about me. It's now about this other person and giving this other person exactly what they need. And that is how the Lordship of Jesus is spread. It's spread through available and willing Jesus followers. Now, that's easier said than done to, because to be totally available, first, none of us want to be that available in this culture. But second, to be that available to people 
It requires a dying to self. That's what Jesus is talking about when he's preparing his disciples in Luke chapter 9, when he says, if you want to be my disciple, then you have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily. That's the dying part. And follow me. But the reason I don't want to die to myself, the reason that you don't want to die to yourself is because we have bad theology. Or not necessarily bad theology, but just not a whole theology. Because we believe that we really just kind of have one shot at life. We, we have this opportunity, and then we die, and then we go to heaven, and that's it. In 1 Thessalonians, in the next coming chapters, the Apostle Paul is going to teach them of, of the theology of the resurrection from the dead. Um, and we'll save an in-detailed description for that for the coming weeks so we can tackle it head on. But, but just a, a little intro. G- Jesus taught, the, the Apostle Paul taught the Thessalonians as well, that when Christ returns, those who had believed in him in their life are going to be resurrected from the dead just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And then Jesus will make everything new, new heavens, new earth, and we will live on a new earth under the government and lordship of Jesus. Right? Now, we, many of us were taught that, you know, you die and you go to heaven. And that's absolutely true. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. We're dying today on these crosses, but today you will be with me in paradise. The apostle Paul himself in Philippians chapter one says, you know, uh, to depart and be with Christ is far better, meaning to die and to be with Christ. That's better for me. I said, actually something I, I'm, I'm really, really eager to do. And, and so it's true that we, we live, we die, and then we go to heaven. But the apostle Paul is, is adding on to that theology just as Jesus did. But when Jesus returns, there's also a resurrection from the dead. Now, here's why that matters. My favorite TV show right now is called Maine Cabin Masters. It's on the DI network. And uh, in Maine, I didn't know this. I didn't know anything about Maine until I started watching the show. There are like a b- billion lakes up there. It's a tiny state, but there are like a billion lakes. And all on the shores of these lakes are these tiny little cabins. They're not cabins and cottages for super rich people, just normal, ordinary people. Listen, now Maine is moving up my bucket list. And I'm doing the maps from my house in Cypress, Texas to Maine. I'm going to tell you, it's a very, very long drive. And I'm doing the math of like, okay, you know, it's like two days up there. And then, you know, it'll be two days back. And how long do you have to stay in order to make that four-day drive worth it? How much vacation? I'm trying to do all the math because I have to get to Maine. Now, the truth is, is I'm probably never going to Maine because if we did a vote in our house, who wants to go to Disney World and who wants to go to Maine, I'm just telling you, Maine is not going to win. Now, here's why that matters, because that's, that's on my bucket list. But you, you have a lot of things that, that you want to, to do, too. Places you want to go, things you want to see, things you want to accomplish, the life that you want to live. And if our theology is not whole, all we have is I live, I die, I go to heaven. So I just got one shot. I got one shot to live in a gated neighborhood. If you want to live in a gated neighborhood, you better do it now. You live, you die, you go to heaven. If you, if you want to have a life where you're, you, you, you can pretty much do whatever you want, then you better make as much money as you possibly can because you live, you die, you go to heaven. But the Apostle Paul teaches them about the resurrection of the dead. 
And here's why that matters. It matters because we live, we die, we go to heaven, we're resurrected from the dead, we live on the new earth. The truth is, is we don't just have one shot. When I was a kid uh, in the 80s, um, stores advertised their layaway plan, especially at the holidays. And it, it meant that you could actually buy something in September with just a small amount of money, a deposit, and you could pick it up later. So maybe I go to Maine, maybe I don't. But the truth is, is I can put it on layaway. Because one day I'm going to be resurrected from the dead and I'm going to live on the new earth and I have eternity to go and enjoy the lakes of Maine. We don't just have one shot. And here's why that matters. Because it means we can die to self now. We can deny ourselves now. We don't just have one shot to fulfill those cravings that we have. We don't just have one shot to do good things that we want to do. We can be totally available to people so that they might know that Jesus is Lord. Paul says, we were like you. We were among you like a mother. Then he goes on, how do we spread the lordship of Jesus? We do it with hard work. Verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden on anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. This is also going to be a theme in 1 Thessalonians. He's going to encourage them to work hard. They were so convinced that Jesus was going to return that they just went ahead and retired early. I don't really need to work. Jesus is going to return. He's going to feed me. I don't need to pay for my house. Jesus is going to give me a house. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, 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 no. We were a model for you. We worked hard for you. Your job is hard. It's stressful. But that hard work, it's not just a way for you to pay the bills. It is a tool in your hands to spread the lordship of Jesus. Next, how do we do that? We do it with a holy, righteous, and blameless life. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. What Paul is saying is the messenger is an important part of the message. He says to the Thessalonians, we didn't give you an excuse not to believe in the lordship of Jesus. We actually gave you a model. Paul has this pattern in his writings of using three synonyms to prove his point, and he does that here. Holy, righteous, and blameless. Now, when we think of being holy, I don't know about you, but I just swing from the extremes. One extreme is I'll never measure up. How could I ever be holy? How could I ever be righteous? How could I ever be blameless? Or then I swing to the other extreme, which is like, oh, I think I'm pretty, pretty good. I think I'm good enough. But how do you know when you've hit that standard where the Apostle Paul has already taught them and encouraged them that they're doing the right thing? Back in verse 6, of chapter one, when he says that they were imitators of Christ. Instead of worrying about, have I met the metric of holiness? Have I met the standard of righteousness? You just worry about imitating Jesus. If you imitate Jesus, then you will be holy. If you imitate Jesus, you will be righteous. If you imitate Jesus, you will be blameless in your relationships. And finally, the last thing, how do we spread the lordship of Jesus? We do it like a father. Verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. 
encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We should have saved this verse for Father's Day a few weeks from now. It's a good roadmap for dads. You encourage your kids, you comfort your kids, and you implore your kids to live lives worthy of God. We don't need to get caught up on that phrase, worthy of God. We could never be worthy of all of the grace that God has given us. That's why in Revelation chapter five, there's this picture that at the end of the picture, only Jesus in heaven and on earth is the only one who could really be called worthy. What Paul is trying to get across is what he says in Romans chapter uh, 12, when he says, present yourself as living sacrifices in view of all that God has done for me and all that God has done for you in, in view of the miraculous grace that God has poured out on our lives through the life, death, and resurrection of his own son. God, I, I offer my life back to you. I, I want to be a living sacrifice. That is my response. That's what Paul means here when he says, live a life worthy of God, that my life makes sense in view of all that God has done for me in Christ. And he says that they encouraged them to live lives worthy of God, and they comforted them. This word comfort here, it, it means to come alongside, to help few months back, we were at the last stoplight before we get to our house. It's just about a block away. and There's lots of cars in front of us and the light turns green. I can see it up ahead. And the, the, the lane next to us is moving. Traffic now is flowing. People going through the green light. But our lane, it's not moving. And the water's kind of spread apart and, and you can see that a car has died up ahead. But there's lots of cars between uh, me and the, the, the car that's died. And so I'm expecting, hey, somebody's going get to get out, help them push. But no, everybody's just going around. And, and so Amanda and the kids are in the car with me. So I get out. I tell her to get in the driver's seat. We're just a block from home. Hey, I'll meet you at home. I'm going to help push them out of the way. And so I get up there and obviously look at me. I don't need any help pushing that car. Uh, I could do it all by myself. But some other good Samaritans came and they were, they were helping, you know. But I was just amazed how many people we're driving by, but you know what the truth is, is that most of the time I drive by too, and I don't know about you, but I start wondering how they ended up on the side of the road. You know, how, how did their car die? Were they irresponsible? They didn't go get gas, right? They were trying to stretch out the, 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 the gas light when it comes on. Uh, did they not, you know, get the nail out of their tire and now their tire's flat? Did they forget to put oil in their engine and now their engine explode, right? And I think one of the reasons why to go back to those charts from the beginning of the message, that the Christian faith in America is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller is because too many of us, Jesus followers, have been content to drive by people who are hurting and wonder what they did to deserve that. Or we're content to roll down our window and yell out some passing advice on our way by. But Jesus himself leads the way for us that to spread his lordship, we got to get in the mud with people. We got to get out of our cars. We got to help push. We have to come alongside other people. His own incarnation shows us this is how he is. God saw us in our sinful state, broken by pain and death. And what happens? Jesus came to be with us didn't just send down advice so that we could get to where he was. He came to us. 
We got to get out. We got to help people. So if there's somebody that you love and you care for and for whatever reason, they're just not seeing Jesus' lordship the way that you're seeing it and you want it so bad, ask yourself, have I gotten out to help them? Have I come alongside or am I just trying to say things to them out the window on my way by? Comforting and urging, my Bible says. Your, your version of the Bible may say imploring them to live lives worthy of God. That's a court word. It means to call to the stand, somebody giving a testimony. And that's a powerful combination. The truth of God at work in the world through Christ partnered with a testimony of how Christ has changed that person's life. Will the Christian faith survive? You know, honestly, I'm not that worried about it. I'm not that worried about it because the Christian things we do don't make us Christians. Our worldview doesn't make us Christian. What makes us Christian is Christ and Christ the Lord. And he is Lord, whether we see it and acknowledge it, whether we learn to obey him as Lord or not. He is Lord, always has been and always will be. What we need to concern ourselves with is how do I spread the news? How do I spread the news that Jesus is Lord? And how do I help other people obey him as Lord? As you know, at Bayou City, we like to finish all of our gatherings by praying for one another, and we're gonna do that as we end today. And below, you'll see the, the number to our prayer team, and they're always standing by. And I wanna encourage you to take a picture of that number so that when we sing in just a second, if, you, if God stirs your heart, hey, you need to be prayed for. I want you to call in. Um, every week, people are calling in, and God is at work. And so if you need prayer of any kind, I wanna encourage you to do that. Uh, and we're going to continue to worship together. Will, will you pray with me? Jesus, we acknowledge that you are Lord today. And we want to see it even more clearly than we ever have. And we want to take the next step of helping other people to see it and respond to it. Will you help us to be courageous we purify our motives. We help us to be available. We help us to live lives of holiness, righteousness. And we help us to be the encouragement, comfort, and the urging for other people to believe as well. We ask this in the name of that Lord the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the name of Jesus, amen.